Hey, welcome to Forefront 360 at the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. Today we're going to review some art and culture for you guys. I'm Rich Chrisman, and I have with me today Nate Mancini. Hello. And Zach Ozinski. Hi. Uh, but I would like to hand it over to Nate first to share with us what he has been, you know, loving on these days. Thank you. Well, uh, the, the art that I have to review today is, as I feel like is typical, a book that I've not yet finished and I'm already reviewing. And I feel like I should ideally wait until I finish a book to review it. But as I was thinking through... But then you'd have to finish it. I, well, I, I, I do want to finish it, but it's going to be a while because it's a long book. Um, so we'll see if it's good or not. I think it will be good because it's considered an American classic. Uh, what I want to talk about was East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Have either of you guys read that? I have not. I uh, I do love Steinbeck, though. Yes. Yeah, I think he's he's really considered like one of the great American novelists. So um, I, I was excited to dig into this work. And I've only gotten just a little bit into it, and I'm really enjoying it. And I'm kind of getting just every couple days, I'll pick it up on Kindle and like read a little bit. Um, really enjoying it. But I wanted to to talk about it because, you know, John Steinbeck, as far as I can tell, was not a Christian. And yet his books do draw on biblical imagery quite a bit. Um, even the title East of Eden, of course, drawing on uh, biblical imagery there. And um, a lot of his characters are Christians and they're like things about their faith that, that he writes about them that are that are pretty interesting and uh, apparently like Cain and Abel were the inspiration for East, the story of East of Eden. So there's a lot of uh, biblical parallels that go on that I, I think are interesting to discuss. And my hope is that when I finish the book and can look back, uh, there'll be more things to talk about in that regard. But I wanted to read an excerpt, uh, a passage that I found interesting. And this is one that I think really shows Steinbeck's ability to describe characters and have you picture them and like think about people like that that you've met. He has these incredible character descriptions, but also this description has kind of a, I think a unique relevance to the arts and, and to our love of the arts. So that's why I chose it. So here it is from chapter five of East of Eden. It says, and Samuel had not only variability, but was a man of ideas and innovations. In small cut-off communities, such a man is always regarded with suspicion until he has proved he is no danger to the others. A shining man like Samuel could, and can, cause a lot of trouble. He might, for example, prove too attractive to the wives of men who knew they were dull. Then there were his education and his reading, the books he bought and borrowed, his knowledge of things that could not be eaten or worn or cohabitated with, his interest in poetry and his respect for good writing. If Samuel had been a rich man like the Thorns or the Delmars, with their big houses and wide, flat lands, he would have had a great library. The Delmars had a library, nothing but books in it, and paneled in oak. Samuel, by borrowing, had read many more of the Delmars' books than the Delmars had. <laughs> in that day, an educated rich man was acceptable. He might send his sons to college without comment, might wear a vest and white shirt and tie in the daytime of a weekday, might wear gloves and keep his nails clean. And since the lives and practices of rich men were mysterious, who knows what they could use or not use. But a poor man, what need had he for poetry or for painting or for music, not fit for singing or dancing? Such things did not help him bring in a crop or keep a scrap of cloth on his children's backs. And if, in spite of this, he persisted, 
Maybe he had reasons which would not stand the light of scrutiny. Take Samuel, for instance. He made drawings of work he intended to do with iron or wood. That was good and understandable, even enviable. But on the edges of the plans, he made other drawings. Sometimes trees, sometimes faces or animals or bugs, sometimes just figures that you couldn't make out at all. And these caused men to laugh with embarrassed uneasiness. Hmm. So I just thought it's, it's a great passage. And, um, you know, for one thing, the, the, the passage about the Delmars having this big library of books, and yet Samuel's read more of them than, than they had. Uh, and it's almost this joke of like book buying and book reading are like two entirely different pursuits mm-hmm. <laughs> and like you have these rich people buying books to make themselves look knowledgeable but then you have samuel who owns very few books but just borrows them and reads them and become yeah. becomes knowledgeable by that um you know he doesn't need wealth to make him knowledgeable just just the willingness to borrow and read um and then also just this again the stuff that we talk about all the time where you have like the, the things that are utilitarian the things that are quote useful for life and society and then the things that are are just simply beautiful and the idea that like Samuel is a poor man it's almost like suspicious that he would be interested in these things that have no use um and it's like it's like the, his his other uh, the other people in his community just like simply do not understand it the idea that he would be making these schematics and then like drawing little figures that just don't mean anything it's like mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, hmm. no, no, no. Something. <laughs> don't really yeah. know what to say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just love that, that, uh, Steinbeck is kind of craft crafted such a character, um, who is at once kind of out of place and in, in his own community and, and seen as strange, but that, that we as an outsider can, can kind of look up to as somebody who understands both the, the beautiful and the useful. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, there was a part in there where uh, it just kind of reminded me of uh, coming off of the Christmas season here. It reminds me of this part in uh, A Christmas Carol where uh, the there, when Scrooge's nephew Fred comes into the, the counting house in one of the earliest scenes and he talks about how, you know, Scrooge says like, why would you spend any time on something that wouldn't, you know, make you money? And Fred yeah. says, although Christmas has never put a scrap of gold in my pocket, I celebrated nonetheless or whatever he says. And it yeah. just made me think about like, it's so interesting that this as a, the viewer or reader of a Christmas Carol in the same way that I think what Steinbeck's doing here is like the, mm-hmm. we are like, of course we do things that wouldn't put a scrap of gold in our pocket. You know, yeah, yeah. of course Fred is the good guy, you know, but I think a lot of times in real life we, uh, we are quick to throw things aside if they're not useful in some, I don't know mm-hmm. if physical is the right word, but like some sort of like direct or immediate way, you know, to meet our yeah. physical needs. Yeah. yeah. It shows, it shows what we value in society. And, and in this book, East of Eden, uh, like there's one of Samuel's sons that is, apparently just a a lucky man when it comes to like business and investments. And so, so one of Samuel's sons just like 
you know, helps, helps a business raise money that's about to fail. And then the business like ends up becoming this massive business empire and he ended up with a stake in it. And so he just like accidentally makes a fortune. And meanwhile, his dad like has no money at all and just like is kind of unlucky with the money that he does make. Uh, and you know, is j- just kind of struggles to survive, but also enjoys the good things in life. And it's just this interesting, this interesting dichotomy where like fr- f- from the outside, in the community, you look at that and it's like, oh, he, he has this amazing son, but he's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as kind of an objective observer who's kind of trying to understand the character of these people, you're like, wow, like he may not have a lot of money and he may not, he may not appear like successful or rich. And yet as you read about him, you're like, th- like this is the kind of man that I would want to be um, somebody who, is, is well-rounded in his interests and abilities uh, and, you know, spends more time reading than buying books. So mm-hmm. just a, just a cool character and amazing descriptions and uh, looking forward to digging more into some Steinbeck. That's great. If I, if I uh, could make a comment too, the, when you started in the beginning talking about uh, how you don't, it doesn't appear that Steinbeck was a Christian, but he definitely, you know, swims in those waters. Um, yeah. I just think it's so interesting. So many conversations that we've had uh, with, you know, people like Ben Myers, hopefully you're listening, or, you know, things, just conversations that are being had out there right now. Just the fact that, um, I mean, not that we want to put Christianity aside on this podcast, but even Christianity aside for a second, the idea of a common cultural understanding, which in Steinbeck's time, regardless of one's religion, you couldn't study literature or culture or you know whatever without being literate in at least key biblical stories if not you know more than like i i think looking at literature you know i was an english major in college and whatnot and looking across european literature and american literature i would say that a lot of authors that don't appear to be christian or they either profess or sometimes they are decidedly not Christian seem to have a better understanding of the Bible than a lot of people that claim to be Christian today. And I think that just speaks to how, just how different our academic and like literary culture is now. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, not even again, putting Christianity aside, uh, even in other cultures that are not Judeo Christian, um, you know, like Asian cultures or, or whatnot, there is like often a similar, uh, fabric to, you know, thematic understanding and things like that. And, you know, a lot of people are arguing that today in the West, we, we don't have that anymore. And it's yeah. difficult to, um, you know, we, we, it's, there, there are lesser, there are fewer and fewer stories that we could reference that everyone that would pick up our work would know, you know? Yeah. And I've also seen the, the argument, which is just interesting. I've also seen people saying that, um, the Disney movies are are equi- equivalent of that, where if you reference a Disney movie like The Lion King or Aladdin or something like that, every American knows what you're talking about. Yeah. And there's very few things that are that far reaching, which is interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, to Cody's chagrin, I haven't seen The Office. So as many references that he makes, they just fall flat. But I have yeah. seen Disney movies. Yeah. And somehow you've made it. Yeah. I'm still here. Yeah. Still here, still yeah. relevant. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, relevant, we'll see. But <laughs> Zach, though, is relevant. What do you have to share with us, Zach? <laughs> no, I was going to say it's just like being on the board of an arts organization where they always quote Star Wars. and <laughs> It is like um, that. It is kind of like that. I could imagine what that would be like. That would be a horrifying reality, though. I hope no one, you know, is in that situation. Yeah. yeah. It makes sense, though, because Star Wars, you know, it's it's a classic space opera that everybody's seen. Um, so <laughs> referen- <laughs> referencing it seems, you know, logical. Yeah. Uh, well, anyways. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of art have you been consuming, Zach? Zach's uh, like, I'd like to review The Mandalorian. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of wish Cody were on the show today because um, I'm actually going to be talking about something from Turkey. And, oh, no way. Um, I know Cody has spent some, some time in Istanbul. Um, so a year ago... A year ago? Yeah, a year ago, I took a, a seminar on music of the of the Middle East, and the the course was divided up into four units. It was uh, Cairo, Aleppo, Israel, no, Israel, Jerusalem, and um, Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And my favorite unit that we did was was on Turkey and. Um, wrote all my papers on on Turkey and for that class, and was really taken by by the language and by their music traditions. And so, um, one musician that I was exposed to in that class, or two actually, um, their names are Brenna McCrimmon and Selim Sessler. Brenna McCrimmon is a woman who's actually from Toronto and discovered Turkish music and Balkan music at her local library while growing up. No and, way. And decided to uh, uh, somehow got involved in the Turkish music scene in Canada and decided to go straight to Istanbul to, to study the music further and spent years and years uh, just, I guess, just becoming a proliferate musician there and, she put out an album in 1998 with a man named Selim Sessler. He is a clarinetist. Uh, he is a, uh, a Roma clarinetist, which is essentially the gypsy population. And he, uh, world-renowned clarinetist, amazing, amazing musician. The two of them and a group of musicians put out an album in 1998 called Karshalama, which as far as I understand, a Karshalama is, uh, I've heard it described as a facing dance, a meeting dance. It's a dance from, I believe, Northwest Turkey and parts of Greece. Um, And to my understanding, it's often, their Karshalamas are often played at at weddings. but karshalamas are distinguishable because they have a specific rhythmic profile to them. They're, uh, I don't know if this is a hard rule across the board, but uh, I think in general, the karshalama rhythm is in 9-8, and it's grouped 1-2, 1-2, 1-2, 1-2, 3, 1-2, 1-2, 1-2, 1-2, 3. 
And so there is a, a regularity there, but you can't quite tap your foot to it mm. unless you have a sense of what the, the pattern is. Sure. But so this album is just full of uh, these Karshlamas. They all, uh, between Karshlamas where Brenna McCrimmon is, is singing and it's interspersed with what's called uh, taksims, which are where a soloist basically riffs on a certain, uh, it's called a makam, which in Western terms would be like a, a key, essentially a musical key. Um, they're accompanied by, so Salim plays most of the taksims on the album. They're also accompanied by, and joined by, uh, I believe, an oud player, a kanun player, um, various percussion instruments that I don't know the names of. I um, love the oud. I listen. <laughs> I listen to this oud guy on YouTube. Just that just plays the oud. His videos are like hours long, and I just put them on in the background sometimes when I'm working. The oud is mm-hmm. such a beautiful instrument. Yes, yes. I, I, I unfortunately I have not been able to find liner notes online for for this album so really my, my guess is on the instrumentation or just by photos that i found on google um but uh karsh lama really uh wonderful wonderful album that i've been enjoying could you could you uh, spell uh, that for us so it's spelled k-a-r-s-i-l-a-m-a okay uh, but the S and the I are a are a Turkish. Oh, okay. They have uh, symbols. It looks like Karsalama, but it's Karshlama. Okay, we just looked it up. We found it. Nice. It's findable. Awesome. A folk dance spread all over northwest Turkey. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. And remind us of the names of the artists again, really quickly. Yeah. So the singer is Brenna McCrimmon. And the clarinetist is Selim Sessler. Awesome. What a cool, I mean, they're both great names, but Selim Sessler is such a cool name. <laughs> the alliteration there is great. That's awesome. Cool, Zach. That's sweet. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, to putting some of this on and checking it out. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I've recently been watching Tehran on Apple TV. And so obviously that has a lot of Middle Eastern music in it and it's just very cool. <laughs> so different than anything else I listen to, but it's cool. Mm, yes. I, I love the, uh, I, I try not to culturally appropriate or anything, but I love the, uh, the whole like aesthetic of uh, the Middle East musically. And uh, I love Middle Eastern architecture. I've always just had uh, been drawn to that. I just think it's so cool. So this is something yeah. I'm definitely going to look into because, yeah, like I said, I listen to oud music on YouTube sometimes when I'm like grading papers. And it's fun. Good stuff. <laughs> An oud to joy. Yeah. It started with the, uh, you know, it, it started with listening to the uh, background music provided for me in Age of Empires 2 when yes. I played uh, Middle Eastern uh, so factions. So I don't know if any of you guys have been down that road, but. Oh, yeah. Classic. Well, um, what I have to share today is also uh, musically based. Um, I would love to talk to you guys about the most recent album by the Fleet Foxes called Shore. Yes. Um, good. I have a supporter already. But um, yeah, so the album released digitally on September 22nd of 2020 
Um, it did have a pretty quiet release though. Like the, the, uh, mm. I've seen, uh, in looking online, um, luckily Spotify notified me right away cause I've listened to Fleet Foxes a lot, but, um, there wasn't really a lot of attention on this release. Uh, even in, um, more, you know, alt or indie music communities and it's starting to like garner more attention now. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to say it definitely deserves it. So, um, I don't know if you guys have listened to the Fleet Foxes before. This is their um, fourth, like, full studio album. Um, they're a, if, if you're unfamiliar with Fleet Foxes, um, at various times and different albums have come out, they've, there's been different uh, amounts of, of band members in the group, but they're um, a group that is described genre-wise as chamber pop music. Mm-hmm. Um, and really interesting, it's kind of like a, uh, it's it's really hard to put a finger on what, Fleet Foxes really is uh, musically because they they draw from uh, like so many different influences. Like sometimes some of their songs sound like '60s and '70s like folk artists in some ways. Like they remind me of you know like Fleetwood Mac and uh, you know Peter Paul and Mary and stuff like that in certain ways. Fleetwood but then, Foxes, yeah, Fleetwood Foxes. But then in other ways, like certain many what they're kind of most iconically known for uh, musically, I think is this that the chamber aspect where they mm-hmm. they draw from like old western choral music traditions like church music tradition yeah. and do these like soaring harmonies in um and i don't know the details of how they actually record this whether it's tech or physically but it sounds like they're in you know a big empty room or like a church or something yeah. um beautiful beautiful um vocal harmonies and also you know the instrumentation is great as well but Mm-hmm. Um, look into the fleet boxes. I can't, uh, you know, really, it's again, hard to put a finger on. So give that a listen, pause this, go over, <laughs> listen to fleet boxes for a little bit. But, um, so, uh, on this album, I just grabbed, I read a bunch of different reviews, uh, as I was listening to the album, uh, just to give you a little fly over here. So uncut said that this new album shore, uh, has quote, soaring harmonies and jubilant wide open melodies. Pitchfork put it in their best new music. Uh, category and gave it a score of 8.3 and if you know pitchfork an eight is pretty high that gets it in the red category which is pretty awesome rolling stone called the album uniquely ambitious while also the band's catchiest to date which is pretty sweet because their songs definitely that they 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 tread this really interesting line where their music like upon first listen their music sounds you know, not like other music out there today, but it yeah. also has like an earwormy quality where a lot of times when I play the Fleet Foxes for people, they're like, Oh, this is interesting. What is this? And then, you know, then you find yourself like humming the song you just heard, you know, on yeah. 10 minutes later. So they do really great with that. Kind of sneaks into your head. Exactly. So the, um, there's been different personalities in Fleet Foxes that have gotten garnered some attention in, uh, the earlier phase of Fleet Foxes, Father John Misty, who is now a standalone artist who um, arguably has been more popular than Fleet Foxes during certain seasons, um, but no longer. But Robin Pecknold is kind of the face of Fleet Foxes. He's been the most uh, common thread through, and um, he described the album, uh, Robin Pecknold himself, said that their previous albums were, quote, warm and I think that that's a good way to describe the sound there, both lyrically and sonically. They're very mm-hmm. warm albums. But he said this one, he wanted to be bright. Yeah. So he was like, I want to make a difference here. I want this to be different. Uh, and I think uh, 
very much succeeded with that. So when, so again, the album is called Shore. The way that it was, uh, the way that Robin Pecknell describes the writing in the album is that it celebrates life in the face of death. Mm. So he said, celebrating life in the face of death. I just think that's so cool. But uh, as, as an aside, interestingly, Nate and I didn't plan this, but um, similarly to Steinbeck, um, the flea foxes are not Christian. Robin Pecknell is not a Christian. Um, but there ha- he has openly discussed in many interviews and articles that he is very much versed in um, not just Christianity, but religions as a whole. He's a very spiritual person. He's very interested in religion, and he's interested in what different people believe. And then also the idea of... Um, he appears to be deeply interested in those themes that like in biblical themes, but also um, what I would call kind of eternal themes that we find in other faiths as well, like Hinduism, Buddhism, things like that. Um, and it's interesting as well, because in a particular interview I found, um, Pecknold shared that he loves thinking about religion and he struggles with, he ultimately struggles with belief, but religion is something that he sees as deeply beautiful and deeply important. And that's why he, he, you know, likes those themes and writes in that kind of worldview. Um, so just interesting there. But yeah. uh, what I really want to tell you, I don't want to dive too deep into the album because you should just experience it yourself. But I do want to tell you that the album has a fantastic story to how the album was created. And I think that um, if the, what, what we've said about the music doesn't pique your interest, hopefully the story will. But um, so... Uh, the Flea Foxes had a hiatus for three years um, after their second album, which was super good. They came back in 2016 with an album called Crack Up, which was um, pretty awesome. Um, but since then, there's been like a lot of... As soon as Crack Up came out, Robin Pecknold started writing for a future album, one that he did want to change up the sound on. So like he said, he wanted to be bright. Uh, he basically experienced like you're still writing traveling around he did recording he did writing and recording in um like the hudson bay area in new york he was in paris he was in portugal for a stint of time uh writing the album uh but he said that there was some sort of like a block like it just wasn't wasn't working uh interestingly um go back to last year we got the covid19 pandemic hitting well i guess oh yeah it's all in 2020 but yeah so you know covid19 happens um he ends up getting locked down by Governor Cuomo's order in New York City at some point. All of his guitars are not in New York City. So he's locked down in Greenwich Village for a while with no guitars. Um, and then so he, uh, I don't know how he got a lockdown, but he took a Toyota 4Runner up to Lake Minnewaska in the Catskills. And he started writing there. Uh, so those of you that uh, are Rochester people that listen to this, upstate New Yorkers, you know, just getting out to the landscape of upstate New York, you know, it's it's just a, a fuel for, for artistic expression because yeah. he got to Minnewaska and then... Love the Catskills. Yeah, so he said all of a sudden just being in like the nature of upstate New York and getting like out of the kind of like stress and anxiety of the pandemic and being locked down in New York City and everything that's going on. And of course, this was shortly, this period was shortly after the death of George Floyd. So tensions mm-hmm. are really high in the city. Um he, um, Robin even like participated in some protests, he said, before he left. Uh, anyway, so he gets up there and he says, all of a sudden he starts, lyrics start popping into his head and he starts reciting them into his phone 
like as he's driving around reciting lyrics into his phone to save them and then later pulling over into parking lots and writing them down so mm-hmm. all these songs like as soon as he gets out of the city these songs just start pouring into his head um and then he ultimately wrote the lyrics to 15 songs within a three to four week period uh during like the initial lockdown um which is super interesting uh, yeah. So Pecknold, quote, credits the COVID-19 pandemic and its surrounding circumstances with causing his anxiety around the album to disappear, which um, I'm going off, you know, no longer quoting here, but it sounds like to me from like the way that this story has been told, um, it sounds like the celebrating life in the face of death theme kind of was born out of him being able to get out of this just this tangled web of of anxiety and situations that were happening uh, during that writing time. It's really interesting. So there's a, there's so much attention right now on both of Taylor Swift's quarantine albums, uh, Folklore and Evermore. And I think it's really interesting because, uh, which actually draw from a lot of the Flea Foxes kind of vibes and, and uh, even people that Flea Foxes have worked with. But uh, that being said, I think Shore is very we're not they're not really talking about it this way but i think sure really is the same thing as these taylor swift albums where it's it's like an album born of quarantine yeah. and i think that's that's really interesting um yeah so i'd i'd like to if you're if you're new to the two fleet foxes what i would suggest to if you like head over to spotify or apple music or whatever um the leading single off of shore is called can i believe you and i recommend going into that one it's ridiculously catchy I think it just samples the vibe of the album really well. Uh, the album does like shift in in mood throughout, but I think mm-hmm. that's a good place to start. Again, it's called Can I Believe You. Another really interesting fact about that one is uh, the chorus of the song is made um, of the recording of approximately 400 to 500 voices compiled by Pecknold of Instagram followers singing that line, Can I Believe You? And so it's uh, it's like the most quarantine collaborative song, like Instagram followers recording themselves singing the line. And then he compiles 400, you know, somewhere between four and 500 voices into the song, which I think is super cool. All digitally shared, you know, as as we as you do. He says we spent days editing them together and cleaning them up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I imagine. This big hug of vocals around the lead vocal. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So definitely give that, uh, give that a try. I think the, the chorus as well... Um, it's just like you can just get a sense of what he's the voice of the album, even just the chorus here. It's the lyrics are, can I believe you? Can I believe you? Can I ever know your mind? Am I handing you mine? Do we both confide? And then the second time, can I believe you when you say that I'm good? I didn't need you when I wished you would. No, it isn't enough. Never held that much. Now another way up in a row too rough. So it's just like, I don't know, very introspective. Uh, almost you can see I mean, he says he's talking about human human relationships and very much maybe, but I, as a Christian, I really read these lines as a similar to like a Psalm mm-hmm. and it just, I don't know, speaks to me. Yeah. So that's, can I believe you off of the album? Sure. I will say a lot of, uh, the album has been out digitally since September 22nd. Uh, but the album releases physically like on vinyl and compact disc, uh, come February, 2021. So, nice. uh, I'm sure that Robin would want you to listen on vinyl. So look, look for that come February as well. But it's going to be great. I just found that this quote as well, coming off of what you were saying about uh, life and death. 
Uh, Pecknold says, I'm trying to celebrate life in a time of death, trying to find something to hold on to that exists outside of time, something that feels solid or stable. No, I have a suggestion for what that could be. But but I but I absolutely love we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. But I but I I absolutely love dealing in I've I've probably said this before on this podcast, but I, I absolutely love um listening to people or, or looking at art made by people who are truly grappling with the, with questions. And I think I think as Christians a lot of times we feel limited to or gravitate to people who have come to the same conclusions as we do. And a lot of times I find, uh, I feel the the closest to God when I'm listening to people like really grapple with the big questions. Like, can I, can I believe you? You know, like, uh, is there, is there a God out there? Is there a plan? Like, is there, if there is a God out there, is he good? You know, and I think that a lot of times people that aren't Christian or didn't grow up in a Christian environment, a Christian culture, actually ask those questions better than we do in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think honesty and like honesty is good; <laughs> it's a virtue. But yeah, indeed. Have you ever listened to Flea Foxes, Zach? You're a musical uh, mind. Yeah, yeah, I love them. I um, oh good. My sister got me. Uh, their album that has the the Bruegel painting on it. Oh yeah, that's uh, the first one. So good for, for Christmas two years ago. But she she got it for me because she thought I would like the artwork on the album. She didn't know that it was an album that I really loved. Ooh, <laughs> that's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, I think yeah, this that one that I really lived with when I when I lived in Rochester. Um, but yeah, I didn't know they'd come out with a new album, so I, I look forward to listening to that. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I will say too. I I think that I um I kind of came into an interest in like indie music or folk music at in that little few year time period, like late two thousands, early two thousand tens, when there was like what they're now calling like the folk revival, you know. So like I was listening to like the Decemberists in like the late two thousands and stuff like that, Iron Wine and that sort of thing. And I think that even now that that era has kind of passed for the moment. Um, the Fleet Foxes have kind of risen to the top. Like back, even though Helplessness Blues, the album came out in 2011, I loved that album at the time, but there were a lot of other bands that I was really into in 2011 too. And uh, just, I don't know if it's just my taste or it just speaks to the quality of Fleet Foxes music, but I don't really listen to a lot of the bands that I listened to around that time still now, but the Fleet Foxes have never left my, you know, regular list of bands that i'm listening to so yeah well guys thanks for spending time with us until next time keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art we'll see you farewell